Welcome to the November 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I am so happy to be back after a short hiatus, but it was worth the wait because I have some terrific guests for you this month. Now, first, we're going to be hearing from one of you in our new segment. It's called Tree Talk. And then Family Tree Magazine author Sunny Morton's going to be here, and she's going to guide you through creating your own picture-perfect photo books that tell just a bit of your family's history. In our DNA Deconstructed segment, Diane Southard's going to be here, and she's going to guide us through dealing with the sensitive information that testing can sometimes deliver. And then we're going to combine two segments, the stories from the stacks, where we highlight a library that's ideal for genealogical research, and our best website segment. And that's because this month, I'm going to be featuring the New England Historic Genealogical Society, which of course is known for its tremendous library and its AmericanAncestors.org website. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up, Tree Talk. We call this segment Tree Talk, and this is all about talking to you about your family tree research. So we posted a question out to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash magazine, and we asked the question, do you have an interesting story that was uncovered during your genealogy research recently? Well, Helen chimed in and she says that she found a family story while doing her husband's genealogy research that was a surprise to everybody in their family. She says, we had a visit to the Warren County, Pennsylvania Historical Society. She says, I looked through documents and some of their newsletters. And after returning home to Ohio, I began sifting through the items I had reviewed. Well, it was a surprise when I found it took us back to the Revolutionary War and the seventh great grandfather was the only one arrested for the Boston Tea Party. I had to verify this and it is on the webpage for the Tea Party Museum. Then I went further back and we came to the Mayflower. These are facts no one was aware of in the family history. Helen also found information on other family lines, such as the Johns in 1640, the St. Johns back to England to 1020, the Pratts in Canada to the 1830s, and the Crists in the 1700s in Pennsylvania. She says, needless to say, it has been a trip through history for his family lines, and we won't mention the thousands of DNA matches. It is quite a task for this amateur, but it has been an adventure. Well, congratulations, Helen. (laughs) That's fantastic. It's inspiring. Amazing how much you could pick up at a historical society. You know, historical societies are often a treasure trove, and I think they're a fairly underutilized resource. If you want to tap into historical societies like Helen did, a quick Google search of your ancestor's town or county and the words historical society in quotation marks, which will make sure that Google only gives you websites that specifically mention that phrase, that should really be all you need to make contact, including discovering whether or not they have a Facebook page. Facebook pages are listed in Google search results. And those groups are the perfect place to interact with other people interested in the history of that same area. And that same search conducted in Google Earth will take you to the exact location of that historical society. And then you can just click the search results marker that appears on the map, and that will typically give you the street address, 
the phone number, and the website address. Thanks again to Helen for sharing. And hey, keep an eye out for upcoming Tree Talk segments on the Family Tree Magazine Facebook page at facebook.com slash Magazine. In this episode, we are featuring an article from the December 2019 issue of Family Tree Magazine that is guaranteed to put a smile on the face of your family. It's called Picture Perfect Photo Books. And here to help you save and share your memories with a family photo book is the author, Sunny Morton. Hi, Sunny, and welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So, Sunny, this is all about photo books. What kind of photo books are you helping us create in this article? Well, let me first say that I think a lot of genealogists subscribe to my mom's theory of how to approach something, which is if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's something that, that I think that sometimes we think really big every time we start a project. But when I'm talking about these photo books, these are weekend projects. These are small projects. They're bite-sized pieces of your family's history that one of your relatives could easily sit down and read and just and enjoy and get, get the sense of in just a few minutes or maybe 10 or 15 minutes. So these are not super long. I would say for your average 10 by 10 or 12 by 12 photo book, you're talking maybe 20 pages. You can always adjust that to be a little bit longer, but that's the cover and the back page and every uh, facing page in between. So it's only about 20 pages. So think of it as like a picture book that you would read with your kid or your grandkid. This is just something to tell a single story. I love this. I love this size. I've made several of these and, you know, 20 pages, that's 40 pages total from, you know, side to side. So you've got lots you can do. But like you said, it's it's a bite size. And I've noticed that when my family picks these up, um, they'll actually read them, they'll actually finish them, which is really saying something. So what do we need uh, to get started making these books? Well, really, I think the reason that our relatives enjoy them is because of all the pretty pictures. Yes. So pictures are absolutely key. They're primary. They're the backbone of the project. So getting whatever great pictures you can is totally crucial. So the best quality, the best, the most interesting pictures that you can find. And I know, Lisa, you've done a lot of these books yourself. So, you know, you could rattle off the same sort of list of the kinds of pictures you want. Of course, any um, family photos, old family photos that show your relatives, their homes, their cars. Those are fun pictures, their animals, um, their holidays and vacations and things like that. But also just anything that sort of tells their story, the places that they lived or went or pictures of of uh, anything that, that has to do with their lives, the kind of work they did, that kind of stuff. And in the article, you talk about that, you know, images are not just photos, they're documents, there's maps. I know, in my case, I took some photos of items that I inherited from people. So even if we don't have the photograph of the ancestor, uh, we might have an old postcard, we might have something else, right, that kind of helps tell that story. That's absolutely true. So my aunt did a book that I really love. It's one of my favorite photo books ever. And she put all kinds, there were ticket stubs in there. There was a little circular lock of hair 
that she scanned in. So in color, so you oh, could see neat. the texture and the color of the hair. I know it was really cool. So, and little bits of, of fabric, like you said, a picture of an heirloom. Um, I've taken pictures of quilts before and other types of objects that, um, that had something to do with my family or that reminds me of them. I can't put the whole quilt into the book, but I can certainly um, scan an image of it or I could take a photo of it um, draped over my bed or something like that. Oh, I love that. Now, I know these books, of course, are perfect for photographs, but in the article, you also really strongly recommend including text as well. So why is that so important? And do you have some tips for us on how to add text? Sure. So again, I think remembering that the photos are the star of this book is really important and keep the photos, you know, if you have, if you think of the the layout on the page, maybe think 80% photo and white space and maybe 20% on an average, it's going to change or from page to page, maybe only 20% of what you're looking at is actually text so that it's really picture heavy, image heavy. It's led by what you see in the pictures. And then the captions, they're still important. They're just, they're just a smaller piece of it. So use the captions to say what the pictures don't say. Go ahead and add the genealogical details, birth and death date or places of the person that's shown in this little snapshot or the relationship of the people that are giving each other a hug in the picture or the occasion, why why they're dressed the way they are or or what's happening in the picture, explain the significance of it, especially if you pull in pictures from outside resources. And Lisa, I know you're brilliant at this. It's like, okay, I need a, I need 10 pictures to illustrate my ancestor's life. And you just go into Google Images and find <laughs> fantastic pictures of old factories and the of Main Street and the car, kind of car they would have driven and something from the Sears catalog. You know, you would, you, you're going to find all that kind of thing. But in your and in your head, you know why you're putting those in the story, but the text that you would put in would just explain that. So this image from the 1954 catalog reminds me of the vase that stood on grandma's, you know, uh, front uh, grandma's desk every year that I visited her when I was a child, except that hers was blue. You know, that kind Mm -hmm. of caption tells you helps the reader make the connection as to why this why you're showing them this picture. Oh, I love those ideas. And you know, we're genealogists, of course, we have lots and lots of stuff. (laughs) And I think sometimes the hardest part, you know, as you talk about this, because the ideas just keep building, is you can't include everything, right? And so it's really hard. What do you recommend to your readers, uh, when it comes to figuring out what to put in, and what to leave out? So that's a really good question. And it's I think it's a pain point for a lot of us who have collected a lot of stuff about our favorite relatives. And I think the first important tip is to think about the story that you're telling. Think that you're creating, um, you know, in these 20 pages or whatever, try to think about what order you might put things in and how you're going to tell a specific story. And I know that, you know, you did this for one of your relatives' careers, Mm -hmm. one of the women in your family that went into nursing. And I remember being, oh, yeah, that's a great idea to just focus on her career because um, you probably have so much on her that you couldn't fit her whole life into those 20 pages. And the story you wanted to tell was specific to now if and you had a lot of things about her career so you did have a really great story to tell for her so i would think about what is exactly the angle i'm taking in this story 
what are the highlights here that I'm I'm trying? Is this is this a sort of a, a catch-all of one person's life? Is it the story of a family living abroad for a little while? Is it the story of a migration? So what is kind of story am I telling? And what is the strongest visual material I can think of to tell that story? And then the stuff that just maybe is awesome, but doesn't really go with your story or the stuff that's really sort of a low quality image that unfortunately, when you blow it up large enough to look at it, it, it does, it gets all grainy and it's, it's not really interesting or helpful to look at. You're just going to have to leave it out. <laughs> and I know that just kills us because we want to, we want to include everything and great, attach it to your tree <laughs> and share it in your, in your family trees. But when it comes to storytelling, you really want this to be a high quality experience for the average person in your family who may not even have taken an interest in a family history before. So you're going to want to show them the best and brightest of what you have. Exactly. And this article, uh, for those of you listening, this is really going to break it all down for you. So it's not just the general idea. This is really step by step. And, and Sunny has laid out for you the best way to get the digitization of your images and where to get them from and how to incorporate your genealogical data. All this good stuff comes together in the article, Picture Perfect Photo Books. And again, that's in the December 2019 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Always a joy to talk to you. And thank you so much for helping us all tell our stories. Thanks, Lisa. Some of the most personal, sensitive, or unique information that exists about us is our DNA. And with the popularity of DNA testing for genealogical purposes, more and more people are facing delicate and sensitive interpersonal situations. So in today's DNA Deconstructed segment, DNA expert Diane Southard is here to share some tips on how to handle this sensitive genetic information. Welcome back to the podcast, Diane. Thanks, Lisa. Pleasure to be here. Well, if by chance someone has just dipped their toe into genealogy and DNA, would you give us a quick overview of the uniqueness of our DNA and the type of sensitive information that it might reveal? Sure. I think most people, when they're just getting started in DNA, um, and maybe even haven't necessarily done too much genealogy either, and they, they hear that DNA is a way they can learn about themselves, most of the time they're, they're interested in their origins. Um, they want to know where they came from. They want those ethnicity reports with those percentages. And I'm even surprised to learn that even with all the information that's available, many people don't realize that there's a second part of the test that you get these ethnicity percentages that tell you you're 32% Irish, uh, but you also get a DNA match list, a list of people that are related to you. There's still a, a good portion of people who've taken a test who don't even realize that's part of it, that you find out you have relatives. So um, that's the first part, I guess, is making sure that people understand what they're going to get. And because the test is so good at determining relationships, it is delivering very sensitive information because it can tell you your very close relationships if they are exactly as you grew up with them, assuming that they were, or if they're not. It can find new relatives, people that you didn't grow up with that are actually a part of your fairly close family. So this is something that, again, I don't think everybody really understands about DNA testing, that it does more than tell us our origins, but it can reveal close family relationships. 
And so specifically, if somebody was adopted, or if somebody had two parents, they thought were their parents, but it might be that uh, one of them, perhaps the father is not their father as they thought they were. And that would be, of course, really shocking to somebody who hadn't expected that. And so that's the kind of results that they're dealing with, right? Definitely, definitely. And I think even the average genealogist who, you know, goes in with both eyes open, understanding what they're getting is finding shocking information, even information that maybe isn't even about their own immediate family, but you're finding maybe a second cousin that you hadn't known was part of your family. And now you're learning something about one of your uncles or your great uncles that you didn't know before. And you're left having to decide what to do. You you didn't intend for this to fall into your lap, but now you're the family genealogist. You're the one collecting information and now you're the one who has to decide what to do with it. Exactly. Well, if somebody hasn't tested yet, or maybe they're assisting somebody who hasn't tested, maybe it's a friend or a relative, what can they do to kind of prepare up front as they're even just getting ready to take the test? Well, the number one thing that you need to do is to figure out a way you can be completely upfront about what's going on without, you know, scaring your relative. Um, So one of the great tools that we have available to us is on the Facebook group called Genetic Genealogy Tips and Tricks. They're in the files section. So if you go to that page and you join that group, there's a file section and there's lots of resources in there that you can download to help you in various aspects of genetic genealogy. But one of the most valuable is actually a consent form. And this kind of takes everything out of your hands. You don't have to be the bad guy or the, you know, the overcautious one. It just becomes a part of what you do when you're asking your relative to test. And you say, hey, this is a form just so I know what you want out of this testing. And it's really simple. It's it's pretty straightforward. Of course, you can you can adjust it if you want to make your own form. But basically, it gives you a way to talk to your relative and say, hey, if I find out something about you or our family that's different than what I expect, do you want to know? And you give your relative an opportunity to tell you up front, you know what, I don't care. Not interested, don't tell me. I want to live in my bubble and not know. Or, sure, yeah, I'd like to know. And then problem solved. If something comes up that's unexpected, you already have it on paper, what your relative wants you to do, and your path is clear in front of you. Oh, makes total sense. So if someone has tested now, and they're waiting for the results, they're coming this way, what tips do you give genealogists after the testing, when the results come, how to kind of deal with it? Well, I think we, for the most part, and the more people that I talk to, it's not if you're going to come across a situation, it's when. I feel like most people are either a second, third, fourth, whatever kind of cousin. This information is coming to light, and we need to to all decide how we're going to move forward. And I think the first thing is to be sure. So the way that DNA is, you really can't be sure of any relationship. So when two people match on the DNA, their DNA tells them that there's a range of relationships. So even Lisa, if you and I matched at a really high amount and it looked like we were sisters, full sisters, Mm -hmm. That's one explanation for our relationship, but without knowing anything else about us, that same amount of DNA could be parent-child. So right. it, it, the DNA can't tell you a relationship, 
And so you have to be really, really careful when you're interpreting information. There's so much information out there right now that many genetic genealogists are are being successfully self-taught. They're reading blogs and they're going to lectures and they're getting really good, which is great. It's what we're supposed to do. But when it comes to really sensitive information, I really encourage people to be certain. You see a match, you think, oh my gosh, this is my half-sister and my dad was messing around. And then you go and yell at your dad, you know, and really it turns out that's not the relationship at all. There's lots of explanations for every relationship. So number one, just be sure be sure you know what you're talking about before you go talking to other people about the relationship. And second, if you are sure, if you know what the relationship is between you and this unknown person, find the individual in your family that's closest to this situation and ask them how to proceed. So if you do find out you have a half-sibling and your dad is still alive, talk with him privately. Let him decide what the next steps are. Don't run off and tell your siblings or tell your mother or tell your other family members without discussing it with your dad first. So if the person involved is no longer alive or available to test or to, to consult, then you it's harder. Uh, but still, try to find the person closest to the situation. Talk with them privately. Make them your confidant. Help them come to understand the situation, and then the two of you together decide how to move forward. Great advice for handling very sensitive information. You can read more from Diane Southard at FamilyTreeMagazine.com and her article, DNA Q&A, Handling Sensitive Information. I'll have a link to that article for you in the show notes. Thank you so much, Diane. Of course. Thanks for having me on. In this episode, we're going to do something a little different. We're combining our best website segment with stories from the stacks, which focuses in on great libraries that genealogists will love. And that's because we're going to be talking about the New England Historic Genealogical Society, which is both a fabulous library and a wonderful website. We're going to explore the Society's American Ancestors website with Claire Vale. Now, Claire's the Director of Creative and Digital Strategy for the New England Historic Genealogical Society, known as the NEHGS, and she's the leader and visionary behind the website's new content, growth, and development for the past five years. She's the individual behind the recent new website developments of the Historic Catholic Records Online Project, which was created in collaboration with the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston, as well as the GU272 Memory Project and the NEHGS's interactive Mayflower Companion website. She's been a busy lady, and we're glad to have her here. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here because uh, the American Ancestors website has been growing a lot over the last several years, as I just mentioned. I'd love to have you kind of start us off with a quick overview of the types of resources. What are we going to find at AmericanAncestors.org? Oh, there's so much to find on our website. So the, the one thing to really know about AmericanAncestors.org is that there are many content repositories to search other than just database search. 
So database search has 463 databases, um, and all of those uh, are accessible either. So you have to have a paid membership for some of them, and then some of them are accessible as a guest, which is just a free registration on our website. But a lot of people, because they're primed by sites like Ancestry and Find My Past, they think that when they come to the site, that's the first place they go. Um, and of course, that is the most trafficked part of the website. That's where you find most of the records. But there are many, many other content repositories on this site, and many of them can be searched without a paid membership. Great. So this area that you're talking about, uh, when we get to the website, we see kind of a menu across the top. We see search and services and learn. I see under search, it says databases and special collections. So is that where you're talking about people kind of head to first, but there are other places with other collections? That's right. So what you'll notice um, across the global navigation that you just talked about, so search, services, learn, library, events, news, and bookstore, when you click on those words, what's go- what you're going to see is a mega menu. And those are those large square menus. And the reason we do those is to expose all the different material that we have in those sections. So, you know, what we used to do is just allow you to click on the word search and then you would come to a page and kind of have to weave your way around to find what you're looking for. So what this menu does is just expose everything in a quick flash so you can choose what you want without having to click too much. So I'll start um, with the search menu and just give you an overview of what what you can find there. So in in the first box, you'll see it says search all databases. So that's 1.4 billion names in this um, set of 463 databases. So something to know about us, 207 of those databases are unique to AmericanAncestors.org. And so some of the most popular uh, databases in that list uh, are our Mayflower Silver Books database. So that's the fifth generation of the Silver Books uh, in a searchable database. And also uh, the database you mentioned earlier, uh, Lisa, which is our Catholic Records uh, Boston Archdiocese database. So those are two of the most popular and well-trafficked databases, but there are many, many more. Um, and about half are unique to American ancestors. Um, So what you'll see there in that first box is that you can go directly to advanced search, and that takes you to a form where you you can do a full name search, and then you can search other fields like location and date range. But you can also select your database, the database that you want to search, from that form. Um, so not all other genealogy websites work that way. It's, I think it's a, more of a convenience um, to be able to select that database right away. Um, if you know you're going to be doing some deep searching in a particular database, that's very useful. Um, and the other thing that you'll see there in that first box is that you can drill down immediately by category. So you can, if you know that you're going to be searching just immigration records, for example, or just uh, the military records that we have online, you can do that in that first box. But then there are these other boxes in the mega menu, and those are the some of the other content repositories that I was talking about. So we've been around since 1845. We're very old. 
Um, and we have produced a great deal of content in that time. So we're coming up on our 175th anniversary next year. Think of it as 175 years of fantastic genealogical content that we are that we have put online or that we're we're continuing to put online. So of course we have the physical genealogical library in our um, our location here in Newberry Street in Boston, which members can come and visit and use the resources in the library. But we are always behind the scenes taking that physical material and putting it online for your convenience. So, so some of the other uh, uh, areas in this first menu are our special interest databases. So you have uh, 19th century newspapers, uh, family names in Britain and Ireland, the Marquis biographies, the Irish newspaper archives, um, and uh, a Quebecois genealogy. So if you are a member, so these are available to paid members, paid members can come and click on those links and search those repositories. Uh, we also have some of the content that, that's been done over the last 175 years uh, are put into repositories that you'll see here, the articles, our guides, and our study projects. So study projects are uh, when an expert uh, who is either on staff or associated with NEHGS wants to, to do a deep dive into a particular area like Western Massachusetts families in 1790, they'll steadily be doing scholarly work in the background and then we will be putting that work online. And so those are searchable as a database, and sometimes they're also printed books that you can buy because we have our own publishing imprint, which is constantly uh, publishing new books in genealogy. There's also the library catalog, and there's also uh, digital book and manuscript collections. So that last link in that menu subdivides into two areas, one for the Jewish Heritage Center, so that's um, papers, manuscripts, business records, diaries, photographs, all having to do uh, with Jewish history in New England. So there's also a New York uh, Jewish Heritage Center. This is, this is having to do with New England. Um, and the other subdivision of uh, digital collections is our, um, our Stanton Avery collections. So that is part of the library's holdings. And we have a team that's working all the time to scan those resources and put them online and make them searchable by keyword. You know, Claire, what I love about the mega menu is it really gives the researcher from the comfort of their own home a really good sense. It broadens their perception of what you have to offer. And it's just vast. So it's exciting to, like you say, not just click search and then just start trying to go down rabbit holes, but you're really getting a wonderful overview of what's available. And as you mentioned, you've got, um, it looks like collaborative databases and content with, you know, external providers as well. So I'm curious, do you have a favorite collection? What, where do you tend to spend some of your time? <laughs> so um, I, I uh, 
you know, have ancestry that goes back to New England. And so I have done a bit of searching in the Catholic records. Mm -hmm. So it's always interesting to uh, use that database and see what kind of secrets you can find in there. Um, And uh, we are the only ones to have that database. Uh, So that's certainly a highlight for me. Also, the Mayflower Silver Books database uh, has been incredibly popular, and that's a lot of fun to search. I don't have Mayflower ancestry, uh, but for folks who do, they write to us all the time and say that that's been a revelation to have that online, and they've been able to make those important uh, connections that they need. I mean, but we have we have so many unique databases that I've dabbled in, and one of the things I like to do is look and see what famous people we have in our database. And I remember once we did, um, we opened up our databases for uh, um, a promotional program, and we were creating a page to kind of showcase what was in that database. And we found Emily Dickinson, the the poet Emily Dickinson's uh, estate records in this database. Mm. So that was fascinating to me because I'm a big fan of poetry. So, you know, sometimes it's not all about oneself and one's ancestry. It's it's just looking to see what's in there uh, that's of historical relevance. And there's quite a lot. I think it's a great way to become familiar with a database rather than having the pressure of trying to find your own people. Take a few minutes and just have fun and explore and use a name that you know you'll find that's famous. And it gives you a sense of really what is available in terms of the records there. And that brings us to searching, because I noticed uh, you have a wonderful search help page, which I always encourage our listeners, go track down where the search help page is for any website that has um, databases to search like yours does. And I see that you support wildcards, and you also have kind of a save search feature. Tell us about that. Give us your best tips and tricks for getting the most out of search. Okay, so the first thing that I would do is I, if I were not, well, first thing I would do is buy a membership, of course, right? Of course. Uh, if, if, um, if that's not of interest to, to the listeners, what they can do is they can uh, sign up as a guest. And so to do that, you would just come to American Ancestors. So even most people head for the search page. What you're going to find is is if you dive right into search, you put in a first name, you put in a last name, you start searching, and then you click on a record that you want, It's go- you're going to hit a paywall if you don't have um, at least some level of membership with us. So paid membership is $95 for the year, but we also have guest accounts. So guest accounts are permanent. They don't expire. And what you would do is just come to American Ancestors, Click on Join and Renew, and you'll see the first box there says Guest Memberships. So the Join and Renew button is over on the right. It's pretty prominent. And then Guest Membership is the first box you see. So all we ask from you is a name and an email address. And once you have that and you log in with those credentials, now you see a lot more content than if you would if you just came to the site and did nothing. So you have to think of it as kind of an iceberg, and the very tip is what you're seeing if you don't have any kind of account at all. And then you see a very large amount of account uh, of content um, if you have that at least a free guest account. And then, of course, you see all the content if you have a paid account. 
So that's what I would do before I started searching. And then once I did that, I would go to search and I would go to my advanced search page. And what we've done is we've put the search tips in line with the search form. So on the right, you're going to see tips on how to search. You're also going to see a video tutorial and a guide to using database search. So these are all done by Don LeClaire, who heads up the search uh, enterprise here. Um, and they're very, very detailed, and it's free to watch and great to learn. But the, the key here to searching successfully is when you select a database, so you'll see on that search form you can select a database. If you scroll down a bit, you're going to see what that database how it's been indexed. So what we what we tell you is, okay, this particular database you've chosen only supports these searchable fields. So for example, year, record type, location, keywords. It doesn't support family names. So, you know, if don't waste your time trying to put in family names because you're going to come up with a negative. So that's what we've tried to do. So anytime you you select a database, the form is going to change and show you, hopefully, only the fields that you can search. But if you scroll down, you'll see those important search tips. Excellent. Great advice. Don't be frustrated. Go ahead and get the free registration right up front so you can kind of go in and, and look. I love the idea that you have the videos to help people become more familiar with it because that just makes searching so much more fun. And there's certainly a lot for genealogists to discover at AmericanAncestors.org. Claire, thank you so much for taking us on a tour of the website. I know people will be very anxious to come and visit you. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you do. Everyone is welcome. Thanks so much for joining me here for the November 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. We picked up lots of great tips and you will find links to all the different websites and resources that we refer to in today's show in our show notes. Now you can find those by going to familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. And there you will find links to all the various episodes. Of course, we hope that you're subscribing to the show. You can do that through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Family Tree Magazine. I am Lisa Louise Cook, and of course, I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com. And of course, listen to my podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.